I've never told this story to anyone. It took me a moment or two to realise what I'd just agreed to. The first mistake that I ever made in my life. She said, I'm leaving Broome now, I'm coming to meet you. The memory lasted forever. Wanted young dynamic people to join our dog sledding family. All I know is that. It was like a shockwave going through my body. Curator of Natural History at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, Jared Archibald went to some extraordinary lengths to uncover a secret, as you'll soon hear. It actually makes you wonder exactly where you draw the line when trying to find the truth. My name's Jess Ong, and you're listening to a podcast episode from Spun, a live storytelling night in Darwin. Now, on to Jared's story. The museum is a great place to work and you never know what's going to happen next. I've worked here for 23 years and every day is different. And one of the things that makes that different is the public inquiries that we get. We never know what people are going to bring into us, are going to send to us, are going to ring us up and ask us about. It could be about the holes in their lawn, in their backyard after a rainstorm. It could be that weird snake skin they found underneath the uh, fridge it has been there for years. It could be the, the font used by American forces on their crate stenciling in World War II. You never know what we're going to be asked. But the most interesting ones come from um, phone calls, usually. And one of the ones I got went like this. Yeah, g'day. It's Squirrel here, manager of Vern Station. I think I found a dinosaur. <laughs> now, we get phone calls like that and they're not uncommon. Most of the time, these uh, things aren't dinosaurs, they're not fossils, they're not what people think they are, they're actual natural things. But we always listen, and we, um, we try and identify those things for them. Squirrel went on to explain that uh, what he had found was in the, uh, the bed of a river on the station he worked at, or managed. It sounded like an articulated skeleton, which was very interesting to us. So I asked him for photos, which, uh, which came to us on a disc, and he was right. In these photos, we could see that there was a pelvis, a very large pelvis, a vertebral column, a lot of ribs and one limb bone. There was no skull, but it was a fossil of an an articulated animal of some sort, and it was quite large. I sent these straight to our our just-retired paleontologist and uh, asked for his opinion, and he got back to me after analysing the photos, and he said, look, as far as I can tell, it's a a sub-fossil of a horse, now, a subfossil is a, um, it is a fossil, but it's um, something where a modern animal has died and its remains become mineralised or fossilised, but it has to have the conditions just right for that to happen. So rather than being a prehistoric animal that's fossilised, it's a modern one. I rang up uh, Squirrel and said, look, I've had the uh, report back and it's a, it's a horse. He was very direct and to the point and he said, mate, <laughs> mate. I've seen a lot of dead things in my time and it ain't no horse. (laughs) The only thing I could do then was to ask him to send some part of it to us so that we could analyse it. Uh, Some months later, a a box with a bloke turned up in my laboratory and there was a huge bone inside it. As soon as I saw it, I knew that it was something exciting. It wasn't a horse. It was the femur of a very large animal. 
I sent it straight to the paleontologist. Now you must remember the paleontologist had only looked at photos and that's all he could go on. But as soon as he saw this photo, he knew exactly what it was and he said, mate, you've got something really exciting. It's a diprotodon. Now a diprotodon is a um, very large mammal that existed here in Australia. It was part of the megafauna. Megafauna were birds, mammals and reptiles that grew to very large size and they roamed the continent of Australia from around 1 million years ago to about 40,000 years ago when they died out. Having said that, I'll also explain what a diprotodon is. If you imagine something, a wombat, the size of a rhinoceros without the horns, uh, but with a big knobbly head and a pouch for its young, you're getting to some idea about what a diprotodon is. It's a very large four-legged animal that browses on vegetation. We had to go and get it. This was the first diprotodon ever found in the NT, it was the first time we'd ever seen an articulated skeleton uh, in, in fossil in the NT. Everything else we'd ever found at our sites were jumbled and mixed up. And it was also the most northerly diprotodon skeleton ever found in Australia. And what we were really hoping for, especially the paleontologist, was that it would be able to connect us back to when it was alive and let us know, hopefully, why they died out. Was it to do with climate change? Was it to do with human intervention? As they died out when Aboriginal people came onto the Australian continent around that time, and there's been debate raging for many years now as to why the megafauna died out. So we hoped that this would give us a whole lot of answers. We hurriedly put together a, um, a recovery trip and we went down to Auvergne Station. Uh, that trip was an absolute failure. We didn't end up getting the skeleton uh, for a number of reasons. The main one being that when we recover a, a big skeleton like this, we need to coat it in plaster, in a plaster jacket that's reinforced with hessian. So we could move it up the nine metre cliff that we had to get it up on top of from where it was and also get it back safely and in one piece to the lab where it could be worked on. The plaster would not go off. It was a, um, something that had never happened to us before and it hasn't happened since. But this plaster stayed as mush. We tried everything, every bag of plaster we had we tried, it would not go off. We even tried uh, a bag of cement from the station and mixing that through it, but that wouldn't work either. It's not really designed for that. And in the end, we were racing against time with the wet season and we had to give up, we failed. It was a complete abject failure. And we thought we would then lose that, um, that treasure because the river would come down, the East Baines River, if anyone knows that one, would come down that wet season and erode it away to be gone. There was nothing we could do about it. In July the next year, Squirrel rang me again. He said, mate, I've, mate, I've been down to the site. I've just got access. It's still there. When are you coming? So we, um, we wanted to get back there. We knew the wet season was coming once again, but um, we were extremely busy and we could not get a window of opportunity until November was the only time we could do it. And that was wrong, but that was what we had to do. Myself and the uh, collection manager, Gavin, we packed up the trooper. We bought 200 kilos of brand new plaster. We took 140 litres of Darwin water because we thought maybe the water was the problem. And we travelled down to Avern Station. Between Catherine and Timber Creek, we went through some of the biggest storms I've ever experienced. Jet black, torrential rain, lightning, heavy wind. And it was a portent of gee, we've left this a little bit late. <laughs> the next morning, on the access track going into the site from the homestead, we get to the crossing we had to make on the East Baines River. Now, the station people had told us that uh, it'd be fine. It was running fairly swiftly, uh, and it was up, but we, uh, we took their advice, drove in, everything was fine. Water came up over the wheels of the troopy, 
Uh, but that was all. Went through. We went to the site. The site, it's on the bend of the river, and you're just travelling along a flat area uh, of scrub, and then you just come to a sheer cliff. It just cuts straight down nine metres vertically. Then there's a 20-metre rocky shelf where the fossil was, and then another three-metre drop into the river itself. We worked in that site all day. We lowered all our gear down by ropes. We got access. You couldn't get the vehicle down there. We made access through a crevasse that was eroded into that cliff. And it was hot. It was in the low 40s, the low to mid 40s. No shade apart from our little shade structure. Uh, And humidity around, you know, 99%. It was a disgusting place to work. Uh, But we knew we had three days to get it out. And so we, uh, we worked like Trojans. At the end of that day, we, um, we jumped in the troopie and went back to the homestead, getting back to the, um, the river crossing. Now, this was just near sunset. It wasn't dark, but it wasn't light. And we went down the embankment. We stopped at the edge of the water. And it looked a bit higher than last time. We looked at each other and said, oh, what do you reckon? Oh, it should be all right. Now, there was the lure of food, because we were starving. There was showers, and we stunk like polecats, and we were very crusty. And there was aircon beds. We'd been given the guest quarters, so there was a strong lure to cross that river. Otherwise, we were just going to sleep in a tree with no food all night, and that was no fun at all. So we both agreed that we would cross. First gear, low range, 1,500 RPM, drive in. All fine. It's not a problem. Water up the wheels, water up the bonnet, water up to the base of the windscreen, fine. Water up the windscreen, that's looking, and then it just, the tide line went up above our eye line, and then it went over the roof. When something like that happens, there's physical and mental things that go on. The first thing that went through my mind was if the water goes in the snorkel, the engine's blown, we are had it. The second thing was, can you get out of a troopie that's upside down, underwater, at night, in a river full of crocodiles? (laughs) And thirdly, what am I going to tell my boss that on the first day of the second recovery trip, I've lost a $70,000 Land Cruiser, all of our gear, maybe the collection manager, because I was going to (laughs) survive. My career was in tatters, and these go through your head. We were being swept downstream underwater. We could see the glow of the headlights through the murk. Uh, We couldn't see anything in that. And you want to control something. The indentations on the steering wheel are still there from the grip that I had on it because that was the only thing that I had control over. And I was just, come on, come on, come on, come on. Just keep running. Something happened. We're going sideways. I didn't hear anything from Gavin, and I don't know what he was doing, (laughs) but probably panicking like I was without really panicking. All the hairs stand up on your body when something really scary happens, and that happened to me, so I must have looked really scary. Um, And then I felt, because it was very quiet, it was quite amazing, I could feel the front wheel scrabbling on, um, on gravel, and it was just, come on, please, come on, just get some traction. I need to connect with the other bank. I just need to be there. And we started moving forward rather than sideways, but a bit of both. And then the, um, we got a bit more traction on the front. The back wheels then gripped, and we actually started coming out. The water level comes down the windscreen on the outside. 
goes over the bonnet and we emerge out of the river. I did not stop on the edge. We kept driving, <laughs> drove back to the access track, went up to the top of the embankment and then stopped. Opened up the doors, let all the water pour out of the footwells, out of the glove box, out of everywhere else that it got to. And we looked at each other and didn't say anything. <laughs> there wasn't much to say. And then the post-event adrenaline rush hits and you've got the jitters. And I got out and I looked back at the river in the fading light and it was unchanged. It was unmoved, it was unfazed. It was doing what it had done for millennia and what we'd just gone through meant nothing to it. The river had its own agenda and we had ignored that at our peril. We had taken our lives in our hands and thrown them to the river of fate by ignoring forces that were far beyond our control. We survived, but only through extreme good luck, not good management. And I came away from the event with a renewed respect for the forces of nature and also a reality check as to my place in the world and my utter insignificance within it. Thank you. Jared told this story at our Spun event a couple of years ago, where the theme for the night was connections. And in case you're wondering, Jared did in fact recover that diprotodon fossil, and it's now with scientists in Alice Springs. What a legend. Now, just a bit of background on where Spun came from. The idea actually came to life on one of those really typical sweaty days where everything was dripping. The Territory is full of lively characters, but there's also heaps of stereotypes. So we wanted to bust some myths, and our aim was to shine a light on the unexpected lives and stories of everyday Territorians. So stick with us, and we'll keep taking you to some surprising places. This podcast episode featured sound editing by Rosa Ellen, music by Lashlo Hassani, and story production by Johanna Bell, with funding support from Darwin International Airport. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening.